Sisters, listen closely. Finding out he's the one can sometimes feel like traveling through a desert of uncertainty. I mean, every time you feel like you've reached an oasis, it ends up being a mirage. As your resident sister and friend, here are five common red flags that you need to steer clear away from. First up, if he's asking for your phone number straight off the bat, but not your dad's, well, that's a major red flag waving in your face. Next, if he's hitting you up with texts and calls late at night, you better believe he's not serious and chances are he won't respect your boundaries. Watch out for those put down disguised as sarcastic banters. You know, the ones that make you the butt of the joke. It's time to show him the door. And oh, if he's more interested in hearing himself talk than listening to what you have to say, girl, that's a sign you need to run in the opposite direction. And let's not forget the classic line, my ex was crazy. Yeah, right. If he's mouth-mouthing his ex left and right, chances are he's the one with the issues. And those are just the obvious red flags. Let's help you uncover what's really hiding underneath the surface with Vibe Check, the ultimate prompt card game for meaningful connections. Crafted with deep respect for Islamic traditions, Vitech goes beyond the surface, allowing you to discover the essence of your potential life partner's faith, character, and aspirations. With eight thoughtfully crafted categories and 135 thought-provoking questions, Vitech ensures a comprehensive understanding of your potential spouse, from values and ambitions to personal quirks and preferences. I mean, skip the surface-level discussions and dive straight into what truly matters. Visit our website, www.thedigitalstory.com now and take the first step towards finding your righteous partner. Your journey to marital bliss begins here. Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh. It is your sister and friend, Adar, and you're listening to the Digital Sisterhood Podcast. In part one of Alex's story, we learned that when Alex was 12, she had lost her mother to an aneurysm while playing volleyball. The sudden loss of her mother and the overwhelming grief that followed left Alex trying to survive a world that no longer made sense. The dynamics of her household also changed. Alex's dad had to travel a lot due to work, Alex's sister eventually left for college, leaving Alex all alone with just the four walls of her apartment. Soon after, Alex began to develop what she thought was an irrational fear of the dark. I mean, she'd run home, into her room, slam the door behind her, turn on the TV and fixate on it, just so she could drown out the whispers and shadows emerging from the walls until at least sleep could take her. What Alex did not know at the time was this would become something a lot bigger than irrational fear. Despite being diagnosed with ADHD in high school, she didn't consider taking the medication until she met and spoke with her roommate in college, who also happened to have ADHD. And boy, did that change her world. Soon after graduating college, Alex landed a job at a tech startup and finally had access to health insurance. That's when she decided to see a psychiatrist for ADHD. That's also when she was first diagnosed with bipolar disorder, in which she immediately dismissed. She didn't quite understand what that meant. 
or implied. So she did what most people do. She left it on the back burner. Alex decided to dismiss her diagnosis. And unfortunately, her symptoms only escalated. One Thanksgiving weekend, Alex went to visit her friend's family. That's when Alex began to feel off. She started to have these paranoid thoughts. Her thoughts revolved around the idea that the family that she was staying at was going to come to her while she was asleep and murder her. Alex was in a complete panic. How would you feel if you felt like you were no longer safe? Alex no longer felt safe. She went into complete emergency mode. And in order for her to save her life, Alex decided, okay, I'm going to pack up my bags quietly. I'm going to sneak out at night when they're all sleeping and make a dash for it. And so that's exactly what Alex did. Alex packed up her bags. She put on her clothes. She thought about the exit. She thought about the Uber. She thought about exactly how she's going to make it out of this house alive. And so Alex comes downstairs while everyone's asleep. That's what she thought. Tippy-toeing down and dashing for the door. But then she hears her friend's mom calls after and says, Alex, where are you going? Alex looks back, thinks, this is, this is the only time I got to run. And so Alex opens the door, runs down the driveway, doesn't see her Uber that she called. So Alex runs and runs. And the family that she left behind is what? Is running after her, chasing her, saying, Alex, Alex, what's wrong? In the end, everything caught up to her. Alex ended up in a psychiatric hospital for the very first time. Alex woke up with both her ankles and wrists tied to her bed. It was like couldn't move. And I just remember like being so like pleading. I was just like, oh my God, they're going to kill me. They're going to kill me. And I couldn't even lift my head. You know, I can only turn my head to the side. I, I literally can't move. All my, all my limbs are tied down. And I can see this kind of window in the door frame. And I can see people walking past. And I, like, I don't, I'm not sure what's going on. I'm like really scared. I'm like trying to yell for help. I'm just like, please don't kill me. Please don't kill me. Um, and then, you know, someone finally comes in and, and they set up an IV and then and then I'm out. So I woke up in a uh, you know, psych facility. Um, I had no idea what was going on. I, I remember very little of this time. I don't have a very strong memory of the first few days that I was there. Um, I have like brief flashes of, of things that happened, but I remember the last day. I w- was really, really scared. I was really scared because I felt like I was not supposed to be there. And I remember looking at the other patients there and, and you know, looking at the whole, the whole, like, situation, and I'm being like, how did I, how did I end up here? Like, this is a mistake. I remember thinking that, like, this is a mistake. Somebody, you know, somebody messed up. They got confused. Like, I'm not supposed to be here. You know, I watched. It was like, it, it was just a very surreal It was a very surreal experience. Um, And what's even crazier is when I remember the days before, the days before the last day, it it didn't seem strange. But I also didn't have a lot of, I wasn't thinking very clearly. But, you know, we had, there weren't weren't many patients there. Um, 
you know, maybe 15, less than 20 for sure. And we would like line up at the door to go outside. Um, and outside was just this courtyard, like not, it wasn't even outside. It was like, what do they call it? You know, and it's inside the middle of a building. <laughs> um, and, you know, we had lunch there. We had lunch on these like plastic trays, like you're in grade school. And it was like that. It was like, it was like we were all like children. Um, and, you know, it was just these adults who couldn't, we could not take care of ourselves. Um, and I remember when I started to become more aware, I, w I was like, why am I here? I shouldn't be here. And on the very last day or the day before I was discharged, um, I had to see a doctor. There was a doctor there. I guess I guess we had to see him every day. And the doctor was talking to me. I, I, I don't really remember what was said. I remember thinking, like, you have to get out here. Like, you have to convince him that you're well um, and that he'll, like, sign off on letting you go. You can't stay here. You'll die here. And he threw out this term, um, schizophrenia, and I was like, what is happening? Like, this is not, somebody made a mistake. Um, but he, you know, during that time, um, I've gotten hospital records since then. And, you know, in my chart, he says bipolar disorder with psychotic features. Um, and, uh, you know, he, he like talks about, he has these notes about, you know, um, my, what I was experiencing and things I was saying as far as my hallucinations and delusions during that time. But I remember when I was in that room with that doctor, I was like really trying to play it cool. Like I, I, I was still a little bit in um, the state of uh, kind of suspicion and, and thinking like you just have to make it out of your life. Um, I was trying to play it cool, but when he said this, I was like really unnerved. Unfortunately, this wasn't the end of Alex's troubles. The aftermath of the hospitalization was much worse. I mean, the whole thing was a traumatizing experience. But at the very least, at the end of it, at the end of this really dark tunnel, at least her family knew this time. They knew that Alex just wasn't just a screw-up who didn't try hard enough, right? Alex, too, was also realizing she was dealing with something really big, right, that she couldn't just ignore and put on the back burner. Although the news of Alex's illness didn't necessarily change the dynamic of the conversation she would have with her dad and sister, I mean, like, where do you even have this? How do you even have a conversation like this if you weren't having conversations? So, like, where do you even begin? The one thing that they all agreed on, at least, was that Alex needed to take this seriously. Alex knew her delusions were delusions. She knew it. She knew what she was seeing and what she was believing was all wrong. But a part of her wanted to believe them. The part of her that's been in pain, incredible amount of pain for so many years now, wanted to believe there was a chance she could find her mom, right? Her whole delusions were set on the fact that, you know, if she worked hard enough, if she hustled hard enough, she was loud enough, she would be able to find her mom. I remember after my mom died, and I still have dreams like this, but I would have these dreams where, you know, she was alive. Like sometimes it would just be like a normal day. Um, and sometimes as it, as it was further and way, further and further away from her death, it would be like 
you know, my, I saw my mom and, um, and I would be like, like, mom, like you're alive. Like what, who did, who did we bury you? Like, what, why did you lie to us? And, but I would, I would have this in the, in the dream, there's always this moment of like, like consternation of like, what? I thought you had died. But then this like overwhelming happiness because I'm like, it's my mom. Like, oh my God, I'm so happy. And Right in the period after my mom, I remember I had these dreams. I would wake up just like crying, like, oh my gosh, because the dream was so much better than the reality. And like with this too, there's part of the belief which is so enticing. And it's, it, and part of me is like, I, I know it's not real. I know it's a hallucination. I know that it's my mind, you know, playing tricks on me. But part of me is like, there is something so sweet about this idea that I'm so close to being reunited with my mother. Yeah. I'll tell you. So during the Thanksgiving weekend, um, there I started reading this book from my friend's shelf. You know, we were down there. I was like browsing her book. I picked this one. It's called The Time Traveler's Wife. Mm. For anyone listening, it's not it's not worth it. Like I, I, <laughs> I, I went back to it after this, and it's like kind of racist. Like, yeah. Really, just it's it's not necessarily a great book. But when I was in this state during that time, I was reading this book, and I was like, oh my gosh, this is this is it. This this is a message. Like I can what this is telling me. Like I I believed yeah. I was going to see my mom. I remember this moment where I was like trying to climb out of my friend's window. Yeah. I don't know why I, like, chose the window and not the door. Yeah. <laughs> I was trying to climb out of my friend's window because I was like, if I start walking, I'm going to see my mom. Like, mom, like, mom I'm coming. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to find you. Alex continued to have different episodes of intense paranoia and delusions. They were becoming more and more frequent. And now Alex had a language to recognize these episodes. She learns that every episode is marked with this intense period of writing. Writings that sometimes don't make sense. Pages and pages of her calling out to her mom saying, Mom, I love you so much. I love you. I can see you. I'm so close. I'm coming, Mom. I'm so close. I'm coming. I can see you now. I'm trying. I promise I'm trying. I'm trying to find you, Mama. Mama, I'm coming. I'm trying to get out and I'm seeing you now. I'm trying to get better. I'm trying to get out. My stomach is healing. I'm trying to get out. It's sick. I'm trying to get better and I love you. I love you. And Mama, I love you. I love you so much. I need you. I need you. I'm trying. I'm starting to get better and I'm trying. I'm trying. I love you. I'm trying. It's starting to get better. I need you. I love you so much. Mom, I'm coming. I'm trying to get home. Mama, I love you. I'm trying. I'm thinking of you. I'm trying. I'm starting to get closer. I'm trying. I love you. I love you. I'm trying to get close. I love you. I'm trying to get close. I love you, Mama. I'm trying to remember. I love you so, so much. I love you. I want you to be well. I need you so much. I'm trying to reach heaven. I'm trying. It hurts. And I'm starting to make sense. And I'm trying. And I'm trying. And I'm trying to reach heaven. And it hurts. And I'm trying to reach heaven. And I love you so much. I'm trying to reach heaven. It hurts. I'm trying. And it's all in my head. And I love her so much. I'm trying to get better. And I'm dying. I'm trying to get back. And it hurts. And it's all in my head. It's all in my head. I love you, Mom. Now, all caps. I love you, Mom. I love you. Soulmates, we exist. I love you so much. The world means nothing. I want to cry. I love you so much. Mom, the world, it's dreaming, singing. It's singing for you. Mom, I love you. The world, I miss you so much. Heartbreak, so much. I love you. I love you. I want you to know I'm fine. 
I'm fine. I want you to know it's sick. It's pleading for help so bad. Get the meds you need. And I'm bleeding. I'm dying. It's the angels. It's because God, he put angels in heaven. And I'm trying to get back. And I'm trying to find you right now. And my stomach, it's sick. And now it's my back. And I'm crying. I'm crying out loud. And that's why English exists. And that's why God, he made heaven exist. And it's all in my head. And I'm dying. And I'm trying to get closer. I'm dying out loud. And I'm dying. And it's all in my head. And I'm dying. And that's why angels exist. And that's why God, he made heaven. And it goes on like this for some time. Alex recalls that this was the beginning of an episode that left her in the emergency room with a broken spine. I remember that night starting very euphoric. I remember calling, <laughs> this is so embarrassing, um, but I remember calling, I was working um, for these two founders, amazing founders. Um, I was, you know, building out their um, infrastructure and and I called one of them like he was I guess he was essentially my boss um it was I think it was like 4 a.m in, in in New York or like 3 a.m I'm, I'm, I'm sure I woke him up and he was like hello you probably like, you know what is going on I was like I just want you to know that I really believe in what you're doing <laughs> you know I just want you to know like what you're doing what you're building I really believe in it um I really believe in what you're doing like you know I see the vision I see it like I trust you and in my head it was like you know th for me it was like he was one of those people that was like alive and I was like I I, I can I feel that you are searching for something you're longing for something and I was trying to communicate that and he was like okay okay and we hung up um, and I call, I remember I had a lot of other conversations that night, um, but at some point I started to get really, really scared. And I remember packing a bag. Oh, this is another feature. Uh, a lot of times in, in recent years, I've had this idea that I'm like moving on, like I'm, I'm on a journey and I'm have these moments where I feel like I'm about to go to my next destination. So I started packing this bag of like all my essentials. And as I was doing this, I remembered the last time I was packing my bag, which was when I was running away from my friend's house. And I was like, bring only the essentials, bring only the essentials, like bring only what you'll need to remember. Like that was the key for me. It's like, you're about, you're going to die if, if, if they make you, if they kill you, or if they make you forget, like bring enough, like like my phone that had all these messages that I wrote to myself, like, you know, bring the things that will help you remember. I remember packing this bag and preparing to leave and, you know, preparing to like go, go downstairs and walk out the door and then feeling like there's something on the other side of the door where if I try to leave now, they'll kill me. Um, like they know I'm getting close. They know I'm getting close. Like they know I'm like closer and closer to the secret. If I, if I try to leave now, they're going to kill me. And I remember hiding in the closet for a while and, and, you know, all this other thing. At some point I felt like very scared and you know, I was seeing things, um, move along the walls and creep into the room. And I took my phone. I was like, this is the only thing that I'll need to remember and I jumped out the window. We ended up in the emergency room, and I, I don't remember a lot of this. I think I was sedated because I was kind of screaming about, please don't kill me, please don't kill me. I remember kind of, you know, being in, in these machines. Probably they were doing some diagnostics for my spine, and I started to have, like, more clear thoughts 
I was transferred to this other hospital and I remember very clearly this moment of like being denied water. And I don't know why this is a theme too in, in my life. Um, I, I looked it up recently and I think there is a lot of association or at least there's like documented association of schizophrenia and like excessive water consumption. As I've started to become more serious about accepting my diagnosis and kind of looking at literature and, and other people's stories about dealing with bipolar disorder and dealing with schizoaffective disorder, it's been really scary in a way, but it's also been very relieving <laughs> to see things like, oh, wow, this explains like the water obsession. Like that's not just a random thing in my life, but that's like um, something that's maybe associated with with my diagnosis. Like normally I drink like seven to eight liters of water a day. And everyone who knows me is just astounded and confused by this obsession. But I remember very clearly in the hospital, they wouldn't let me drink water. I think maybe um, they hadn't decided if I was going into surgery. And there was a nurse who was kind of with me 24-7 throughout the time that I was hospitalized the second time. And I remember when they rotated nurses, I was thinking in my head at that time, I was still thinking like, I need to get out of the hospital. If I stay here, they're going to kill me. Like this is all a plot to, you know, put me under or make me forget. Or, you know, I'm, I'm so close to discovering some secret and, and they're about to murder me. And I remember when they switched nurses, I asked the new person, you know, if I could go to the bathroom and it was a guy and he was like, okay. And he, you know, kind of stayed outside the bathroom, left the door open, but didn't come inside with me. And I remember, man, I, I, I almost don't want to tell this, but it's just so, it's so vivid. But I remember drinking water. Um, so in this hospital room, you kind of have the toilet in a room and the sink is not in the room with the toilet. It's like the sink is in the, by the hospital bed. And so I went into the bathroom and I started like cupping water from the toilet to drink. And part of me was like, they're denying me water, which means I like there's I need to drink this water. Like that's how I'm going to get like my that's how I'm going to start walking again. <laughs> and uh, that's how I'm going to like get out. If I like clear my mind, if I drink, get like water in my system, I'll find a way like out of this situation. And part of me was also, I feel like in the back of my mind, maybe I'm, I'm adding this, you know, after the fact, but I feel like in the back of my mind, there was this very stark recognition of like, like, what is happening? Like, this isn't right. This isn't right. Um, and I think it was very similar to the first time I was hospitalized and being in um, this room with the, doc the doctor and he said the word schizophrenia and even though I was very kind of out of it at that time, having that be like a trigger to make me think like something has gone terribly wrong. And when I was drinking this water out of the toilet in the bathroom um, at the hospital, the second time I was hospitalized, it was a very similar feeling of, and this is before I, I even understood that I had fractured my spine um, kind of understood what was happening and I was like drinking water out of the bowl and being like something has gone terribly wrong. 
After spending four to five days in a surgical ward at the hospital, they wanted to transfer Alex to a psych ward. When Alex was told she'd be transferred again to a full psychiatric ward, she had to actually fight for her life. There was no way she was going back to that terrifying place. I mean, in her time there, she saw some pretty scary things. She noticed that people weren't treated like people, more like children. You had to line up for everything. You'd see people fighting. And if you did something wrong, they would heavily medicate you against your will. It's a very terrifying place. And there was no way Alex was going back. But due to the extent of her injuries, Alex couldn't be alone. And so with the help of Allah, the hospital agreed to release her to her family instead of transferring her. And so Alex finally went home with her aunt and grandmother and began her recovery. I lived with my aunt for, gosh, probably at least three or four months mm. while I was recovering. And I'm so grateful to have had that. I mean, it, it definitely wasn't easy on her. She's a um, full-time caretaker of my grandma and, you know, at the time, me as well. And, and, and I know it was a lot. And I literally, like, had this, like, buzzer because that to, like, you know, communicate when I needed to get out of bed. Like, it was a lot of work for her. Oh, wow, but, mashallah. Yeah, mashallah. Mashallah. Please keep her in your du'as. Yeah, um, absolutely. May Allah accept. Would you say that, like, being taken care of, being around family for as long as you did also was really healing, you know, like you mentioned, you know, you, you went from feeling so alone and now you were surrounded and taken care of by people. Yeah, I would say it was very healing. I think healing in the sense of I was so clearly loved. Mm. But I think also I started to open up about what was going on. Initially, I didn't really tell anyone about what had happened. Um I initially told them that I had fallen off the stairs. Mm. Um, everyone knew. Everyone knows for a while, you know, I, I have a lot of trouble sleeping. So I said something, you know, I was like taking sleeping meds. I, I fell down the stairs. And I remember at some point when I was at my aunt's house, uh, when I was recovering, my aunt is like a very studious person. She, she actually, she was a pharmacist in China She's just like so studious, like the way she's been studying English. And, and when I came back from the hospital, she kind of like sat down with my medication list and, you know, on her phone was like translating stuff, trying to figure out, like just doing her research and really trying to understand. And I remember at some point she was asking me about that medications, um, because in addition to like the painkillers um, and stuff for my back, it was all of the, you know, my antipsychotics, my mood stabilizers. Um, and she didn't really understand like she didn't have any other information to go on, but mm -hmm. she could see that, you know, I was taking these medications. And I think maybe she asked me about it or something. But I remember when I finally told her how I actually got injured, what was so important to me was she wasn't like, there's a word in Chinese, like, I don't, I don't know in English, like shocked. Mm -hmm. um, she didn't respond with like shock or even like, like a horror, mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, I guess. She mm -hmm. was like, what? Like, oh my gosh. But she was like really, really calm. And she was like, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And I think that for a long time I had this assumption about my own family that they wouldn't really understand mental illness. Mm -hmm. And I told you, you know, early on when I was in high school, the times that I would see my dad, he'd always talk about 
you know, his childhood and, and kind of how hard life was. And it felt very much like a reprimand to me that like I was, you know, failing school and for what, like I had, you know, everything I needed to survive. Mm -hmm. And so I guess I always had this assumption that, you know, even if I told them they wouldn't really understand or they, they wouldn't take it seriously or they wouldn't believe that it was something that was like medical. But my aunt was like, she was just so, yeah, her response was just so loving, very loving and accepting. And that was huge for me. I think my own acceptance of my diagnosis is very new. Mm. And I think being able to talk about it has really changed how I feel about it mm -hmm. has made me feel like, okay, this is something that it's okay to admit and not even admit, but like accept mm -hmm. um, that this is real and this is what I'm experiencing. You know, for a long time, I was diagnosed with bipolar disorder so long ago. And for years, I just, I didn't even, I just didn't think of it. I, I just felt like I had kind of made a decision that it was a mistake and it didn't apply to me. And then only very, very recently, I feel like I've, I've started to become more serious about things. I told my sister for the first time, like, two weeks ago. <laughs> really? <laughs> yeah. You told your sister um, two weeks ago? How did that yeah. go? She asked me about it. Mm -hmm. I don't think I would have volunteered it otherwise, but she asked to know more. Because I think, you know, for her and for my dad and, and for a lot of people in my family, it's like a hard thing to hide. But they also didn't totally know what was going on. And, and when I talked to my sister and, and I told her kind of more, more clearly and more, more plainly what had happened, she was also very, not just accepting, but almost like relieved. I think she was happy to have a framework for understanding. I think, you know, she also, like my aunt, just wanted to learn more about bipolar disorder and, and psychosis and ADHD. And I think similarly to me, having kind of a framework for understanding some of the behaviors that I exhibited over the years was really helpful for her. I read a book recently. It's this woman, it's called The Collective Schizophrenias. And I remember when I was reading this book, I was like, wow, it was just, <laughs> I had spent so long trying to not be this. Mm -hmm. um, and then to read about experiences that, you know, everyone's experience is so unique, but to, to see that somebody, you know, she writes, a, she wrote about this, her believing that she was dead and in purgatory. Mm -hmm. And um, she writes about like, there's a name for that. I, I don't remember what the name is, but there's a medical name for this um, delusion that you're dead. Like mm -hmm. it's common enough that they've given it a name. And I was like, wow, <laughs> wow, this is a thing, you know, like yeah. I'm. I will say I'm still very much in the journey. What what was like, what was your spiritual journey in in all of this? Mm. How, what role did it play? That's a really good question. <laughs> so I, I mean, for, for, for almost my whole life, I've felt myself to be a, a deeply, like have deep faith and conviction. I don't think there have really been periods where that has wavered. Um, I think even, you know, in high school and college when things were really hard, part of the reason why I struggled so much is I felt like it was never a question for me that God loved me. 
it was never a question that, you know, he has a plan. But it was always so hard for me to know that he loves me and he has a plan and feel like I'm very far away from it, to feel like I'm failing. That's that's what I felt a lot, um, mm -hmm. that like I was failing. I was failing my relationship with God. I was failing, you know, his his plan for me because I was having such a hard time. But I think what has made my mental illness a bit complex is because I myself am like I'm a very religious person I, I and I so a lot of the stuff that I believe a lot of the delusions and the hallucinations that I experience inevitably are influenced by like my actual thoughts and beliefs and that has been really I think that has been one of the hardest parts being able to talk about this and and being able to share with others one of the most difficult things you know, um, a Muslim, my struggle with is tawakkul, having trust, even when they don't understand, you know, why. You know, like they might, you might be testing something, you just don't understand why this or why this circumstance. But sometimes, like, Allah has not burdened us with knowing why. He just, mm -hmm. he just wants us to be patient. And, and he does that obviously yeah. out of his kindness. Um, sometimes the why is, is, it might be just too much of a burden to know. You know, and, you know, with your situation, it sounds like you had to have like this, you had to really have to like in so many <laughs> moments. Mm -hmm. You just had, you could do nothing else but trust him. Like mm -hmm. you couldn't, you know, some people are obsessed with trusting themselves. You know, like mm. I can do this. I have the capabilities of doing this. I'm going to, you know, like, cause I have the power, <laughs> you know, I have the strength. And like, but here you are like, you know, absolving that because you, you, you really can't. And, and this is a lack of a better term, like completely feel like you can trust yourself. Because you had seen right. so much. You had seen so, so much of yourself that, like, you could not even trust. You physically, you mentally and physically could not trust yourself, you know? Exactly. In so many exactly. moments. And so how has that experience reinforced your tawaka? Like, what has, the, yeah. how has that redefined <laughs> this power understanding of putting your trust in Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala? To answer your question, I feel like from a young age, it was just so obvious to me that God loves us and he has a plan. Mm. Like when I look at things like mashallah, I've, I've had an opportunity to travel. And when I go places and I see, you know, just like so just beauty when you see things that are so beautiful and you're just like, wow, subhanAllah. Or when you um, like study, if you have an opportunity to study, whatever it is. But for me, it was especially like physics and biology where I was like, wow, like this is so perfect. God is <laughs> it's so, so precise, like, right? Akbar. <laughs> like this is so beautiful and perfect. Like to study biology and like zoom in on like a, a microscopic scale and see how things work. And then, you know, to, to study physics and zoom out to like the scale of the universe and see how beautiful things how beautifully things work you know to study things from like cell regeneration to like gravity you're, you're just like i don't know how people can like study and i don't know if people do like i really feel like everyone who who's learning these things must just be so in awe like it's so awe-inspiring and so for me i feel very i don't know if emotional is the right word i feel very emotional about god like i feel very it, it, i feel it very deep in my heart Mm -hmm. um, you, you know that's you know that's you know what I wanted to say. I, it's interesting. I feel like Allah tests you with something, 
but he also gave you something to have. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Like it, it's so fascinating. It's it's like he tested you with something something like this, but he didn't leave you just for you to figure it out. Right. Exactly. So how exactly. Is it perhaps that we all could be tested with something, but that Allah also gave us the thi- a thing to to withstand that test? Like did I he? Think, yeah. I mean, I think Allah provides endlessly. Yeah. And right. I think you know maybe what you're getting at, and maybe what. Um, took me a while to accept in myself. I mm-hmm. feel like for me, the journey was much more like self-acceptance mm-hmm. than trusting in what Allah has decreed for me. And I think part of that is recognizing, you know, like Allah makes no mistakes. Absolutely. Um, you know, even for me, like this pain that I'm dealing with, there is purpose behind it. And it's okay that I don't t- totally understand it. Um mm-hmm. And it's okay if I have questions. I think that took me a long time. I feel like for a long time I was fighting with myself. Mm-hmm. Um, or, you know, kind of like fighting with acceptance of like fighting with my own experience. And I think now just hearing you talk about this, yeah. it, it feels very much like, yeah, it, it, part of that fight too is realizing like God makes no mistakes and this too is intentional. Like whatever he has planned for me, like I will, I will meet it. I think what you said about like accepting is like accepting that we will never know mm. um, even a fraction of what Allah knows mm. is huge. And I think for me, that was always something that I accepted very easily looking out at the world. And I always love those passages where, it, you know, Allah tells us, like you will not understand this or there are things that you do not know and for me mm. i always it was always very easy to accept that outwardly like seeing things in the world and knowing like i'm not going to understand why this happens or like why this exists but i'm going to accept and trust allah um but it was very difficult to do that internally and to accept like i don't know why i was created like this mm. you know it, yes, it, I and i think in a lot of lesser sense people probably have that thought all the time of like you know, why do I have this habit or that or, you know, the, a disposition towards something um, versus another thing. But like you said, it's it's so beautiful and like just how Allah tests us mm-hmm. and how what that experience is meant to do for us. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, it's, I think I have more it's completely I miraculous, <laughs> Alex, that people can yeah. be tested and then be close to Allah. Mm-hmm. You know, like you mm-hmm. see the things that people get tested with, like the most heartbreaking things yeah and it's only brought them close to Allah that's that's mm-hmm. like sometimes it just it blows my mind you know but yeah. you know Allah intended that you know wants that for them and he's guided them you know to, to that conviction you know you know what reminds you know listening to you one thing is I know is absolutely for sure you know when people say those who struggle with mental health they always say like some people might think it's a reflection of their weakness of faith and your story is a proof that that's not the truth, mm. right? Because that's in your that people say that, yeah, wow. yeah. So, <laughs> and then people and people think this, right? And you see yeah. it too, because like they'll say, "Oh, like if you're depressed, read more Quran, right? right? Yeah. Pray more mm-hmm. Salah, uh, go to the masjid more." Um, that your mental illness is a direct um, reflection of your iman, and it's interesting because you, you know us talking about how your entire experience. You know, even even from down to, you know, delusions was about Allah. 
It was about, it was always about Allah. Like, as you mentioned, yeah. you've always been thinking about Allah SWT. And <laughs> to everybody that thinks that way, that doesn't even make any sense. You know mm-hmm. what I mean? SubhanAllah. And because it excludes a group, excludes a lot of people um, yeah. from that, from that conversation because it's not true. It's it actually really not does. true. And mm-hmm. I hope that people can, I mean, I'm really hopeful. I see a lot of, you know, Muslims doing a lot of work in this area. And I hope that people can, you know, find their work and, and their uh, what what they have to say on this topic, because I think it's really important for people to hear that they're not like bad Muslims yeah, <laughs> please. Um, for whatever it, it may be that they're dealing with. And I think, alhamdulillah, um, in this year, there are a lot. There are a lot of, you know, um, teachers and leaders who are a lot more accepting and open to have these conversations, which I'm, which I'm really happy about. I think one thing that I, like, remind myself to do a lot is I'll be making dua, and then I'll remind myself to, like, pray istikhara instead. Like, I'll be making dua for something mm-hmm. um, that I really want, and then as I'm, like, making dua, I'll remind myself, actually remember to qualify like if this is good for me mm. bring me near it if it's not mm-hmm. um, if, if you know if it's not keep it away from me mm-hmm. and I think a lot of times you know we pray to Dakara and we have a decision to make or when we're at a crossroads but for me I find you know this prayer very very beautiful because it's a constant reminder that you know we want things or we may want things that are not good for us mm. or are good for us in this life but not the next Mm-hmm. Um, and you know there are examples of ways in which Allah curses people with money in this life mm-hmm. um, and other things that we may think you know are good for us but you know will lead to will lead to devastation in the Akhira so oh my yeah. god that's deep you know it's so interesting that you bring up istiqara Alex the whole element of istiqara is that you're, you're you are going to Allah with the understanding of I don't know Exactly. You know, like, mm-hmm. I don't, I actually and don't know anything. not just the understanding of I don't know, but the trust yes. that Allah knows best. It's a, it's a, you know, subhanAllah, it's a mixture of both. It's I don't know, and I, and I trust Allah knows. And yeah. I prefer what I, what Allah prefers. Mm-hmm. You know, it's, I don't I don't prefer what I want. Yeah. You know? Yeah. And, oh my God, it, isn't that the most, the best, one of the best acts of humility? Yeah. You know, like a slave could do to, uh, uh, with his Lord. You know, that conversation of like Allah. It's it's affirming Allah subhanAllah. You know, yeah. and his attributes, an act of it, and it's also a reminder to us as people. Like mm-hmm. you know, there's there's so many things in this world that's so distracting. Everyone's gonna tell you yeah. what all your objectives and goals should be, even down all the way down to like, you know, like us believing. I, I know what's what's wrong with me. I know what's going on. You know, mm-hmm. and it's yeah, like, bro, oh, you. Yeah. There are things that you can't even say. You know, Subhanallah is so kind that even when you're struggling to make a du'a, that you don't even know what to say. You don't even know. You're so tired. You don't even know what to say. And Allah knows what you want to say. Mm-hmm. You know, Subhanallah, like, like that's that's Allah Subhanahu. Like Allah is closer to us in our jungle, but He knows us. He hears. Mm-hmm. It, he understands what's in our chests. You know what I'm saying? And like, sometimes I struggle, Alex, with with um knowing myself. Like sometimes I don't even know mm-hmm. what I intended. You know, like, I mm-hmm. I get confused. Like sometimes, like I don't know, I don't know if anybody's ever experienced this, but sometimes I get confused. Of, did I intend this for a lot? Mm-hmm. Did I intend this otherwise? Mm-hmm. I can't. Or you tell. find yourself like in the middle of a situation. And oh you're my like, god! How did I end up here? No, I, like, sometimes what, what was I going for? Sometimes it stresses me out because <laughs> you know you so desperately wanted to be for Allah's sake, but you you can't tell. Mm-hmm. Like you you feel so dis- detached with yourself, so disconnected, 
and it, it's not, and it, and it can feel like like the acts of worship really hard, mm. you know, because like you're, you're, I want to feel convicted that I did this for a long. I want to feel that 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 conviction, but when you feel kind of like unbalanced or you just you can't even hear yourself, I I always try to remind myself like Allah Subhanahu knows me more than I know myself, mm. and that gives me this like incredible calm feeling, like you know, and I know that like. I can think right now, okay, no. If I don't know what what I had intended before, I can reaffirm it now. Yeah. You know? I'm just so grateful that Allah doesn't leave. I don't, one of the du'as I always ask, I ask Allah, like all the time, Alex, is I always ask Allah, don't leave me to myself. Mm. Wow. Don't leave me to myself. Yeah. Because I, I don't trust myself. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I don't, I mean, I don't yeah, trust it's it. It's trust and it's faith. And it's hard. Yeah. Um, I'm the type of person, like, anyone who spends time with me, like, knows I really like planning. Like, <laughs> I just like to, like, you know, before I go to sleep, know what I'm going to do tomorrow. Mm. Like, it's also, like, I'm really ADD. So mm. if I don't have a plan, like, I don't know what to do. Yeah. Um, and so, I like, I like to, like, plan things out. And, like, I've gotten to the point where I don't really plan further than, like, you know, maybe a few months. Mm-hmm. Um. I just I don't know what's going to change and and a lot of it is really scary like I think my life is is a little bit different from um you know maybe a, a lot of our peers because I, I am very unattached mm-hmm. but a lot of it is really scary like one thing that I think about a lot not a lot <laughs> mm-hmm. but one thing that I think about is like what's going to happen when I'm older um I think this is something that scares me a lot of like at what point or will I, will there be a point where I can no longer take care of myself? Like in, you know, not even 30 and, and there have been periods where I was unable to take care of myself. What will mm-hmm. it look like in 10 mm-hmm. years or 20 years? Mm-hmm. Um, and I think something else that uh, like I've been thinking about a lot too is will I be able to have a family? Is that something that is like okay for me? Mm-hmm. Um I don't know why I got into this topic except mm-hmm. to say I feel like I don't want people to hear this and feel like you know I'm not scared or I don't um have doubts I think I have a lot of questions you know about what the future holds mm-hmm. but I have a lot of hope yeah Alex you're truly just remarkable <laughs> you know wallahi I, I, I don't know what to put smoke up <laughs> but like to to look at the face of uncertainty, you know, because of how like what you're dealing with, and still say Alhamdulillah, you know, mm-hmm. I have a trust I'll be okay, is like it's 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 inspiring, you know, makes me look at like, because because I, I every everybody knows what it feels like to feel uncertain about yeah. their future. Some people struggle with this so much, they get really sad. Yeah, you know, they get really sad, and um. And I and I, and I talked about before in the in last season about um, dealing with something before I started the podcast, like feeling so uncertain about the future that it really made me sad. Mm. Sorry, don't be sorry. It's good to cry. <laughs> I heard um, uh, Sheikh did a lecture, um, and he was talking about you know like sometimes you'll see you know people praying and crying and and they'll like bring their elbows up to their eyes and like they're wipe their tears all along their arms um and it's because there's i I don't know if it's a hadith or it's in the quran but like every 
tear that you shed um for the sake of Allah like when you're crying because you're like so overwhelmed by your love for God mm-hmm. um those tears wherever those tears touch will be protected from the fire yeah it's a hadith it's a yeah. it's a beautiful it's a it's a it's a it's that's why I mean crying is really encouraged in Islam yeah like that openness and like you know something like that it's just I'm just gr- and, I, and then and my crying isn't sad I'm grateful because right. I'm not sad right. anymore you know what I'm saying like yeah. I'm not sad anymore and I, and not only am I not sad I learned something from that experience you mm-hmm. know I learned that like you know don't be in despair because you'll regret mm-hmm. it because <laughs> you'll go and you'll, you'll, you'll come out of it and you'll be like I wish I had I, I've been I would have been patient better you know yeah. um, and so I keep telling myself I, I'm ready for the next hardship because I'm, I'm going to bear that patience better than I did last mm-hmm. time you know that's yeah. how I'm going to show my gratitude to Allah because you know the way that he takes you out of darkness into a light is truly like you know it's, it's the most incredible moment and like and, and I also learned like feeling like even in your darkest times, if you're remembering Allah and you're reflecting and you're 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 drawing close to Him, there's a lamp, there's a light on, mm-hmm. so you're not in full darkness actually, you know, and that lamp can feel very comforting. All of a sudden, darkness doesn't feel dark anymore; it just feels cozy, mm-hmm. you know. And you just want to sit there more. You're like, okay, I can I can chill here actually for a bit, you know. <laughs> it feels warm in here, you know, and it feels nice. And darkness doesn't feel the way that it was feeling before because of this lamp. It's a really nice, bright yellow lamp that just makes you feel like you're in your your room, you know, and and that light, I, you know, yeah, yeah. I think remembering too that there's a light within yourself, mm. and being able to polish, you know, that mirror within yourself to the point where even in total darkness, you yourself can be the light. Okay, I'm gonna ask you the big question: Which out of the ninety nine names of Allah Santala? resonates with your story most oh my gosh what i love about the names of Allah mm. is the fact that you can be a better person just mm-hmm. by like remembering his names because mm. you know when you remember that Allah is the most merciful you yourself like can embody part of that mercy and mm. can act you know be more merciful in your life mm-hmm. when you remember like he's all hearing you can you know listen better to those around you and um imbue some of those qualities i've never been asked that question about embodied my experience i'm not sure oh there's but a there's I, a I lot of love very yeah. deeply so mm. yeah marshall you know there's a lot of names of a lot i would add to your story honestly so many <laughs> i think you talked about a lot in so many different ways <laughs> I, well, yeah i want to hear well, lot, which, i yeah, loved um what i was thinking about was alwali yeah, and really, and that one is like, um, it's like the protecting friend, the supporter. Like mm. I feel like when I listen to your story, I feel like Allah was your friend, you know. And and a, friend, a good friend is has your back even when you're shaking it, <laughs> you know. Like mm. you're not like even when you're, you know. It's like a having this quiet like supporter, you know. Yeah. And I feel like Allah started out with this quiet supporter in your life. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know what I was thinking the other day? Mm. Um, I was reading this verse and, you know, there there are a lot of verses in the Quran where it's like, you know, Allah knows, sees and hears all things. He's all knowing. Um, and we kind of like read those verses a lot or I feel like a lot of times they're presented to kind of not scare us, but remind us of like, you know, do good deeds. Um, like you can't lie to Allah. Mm. Um, 
but I was reading this and I feel like it's also very beautiful in this idea of like Allah knows everything that is in your heart and mm. in your everything that you're going through everything you're struggling with and mm-hmm. but he also sees like a path forward mm. so not only does he know like what's like everything in the world but anything that like you are dealing with he mm-hmm. knows intimately mm-hmm. so how could you ask for a better friend how could yeah. you ask for a better supporter so i love that yeah. you said that name because it's like <laughs> it makes me think of like yeah it, it's really so you couldn't ask for a better friend because he knows everything yeah. that you're dealing with Absolutely. and then also how to get out of it or how yeah. to move forward absolutely you know it's okay i pulled it up right now it says Allah as Al-Wali is a true protector. He's supportive and loves his service, protecting them from evil. Allah wants victory for them and will guide them, mankind, towards the path of righteousness. Mm. You know, you talked about, like, mm. wanting to be on the path of, like, you know, goodness. Yeah. And Al-Wali is, like, the supporter of making sure that his slave is on the path of righteousness. And he's supportive yeah. in that way and he's protecting him in that way. Um, and, and I think it's, and he's granting the victory so I, that's the name I would attribute that's I love that's it what I, was I thinking love of. it thank you <laughs> Alex I I'm super excited um, for your story Jazakallah khair so much uh-huh. for coming on this podcast and for being so open and being so vulnerable I know this wasn't easy and no it was you know it's it's not easy and I know it wasn't easy but I know I ask about Santala you know, to reward you, to recompense you for this, because, like, I don't think anybody could do but him for your selfless act and telling the story and being open and being vulnerable anyway. Honestly, Jazakallah khair, truly from the bottom of my heart um, so for telling you. For, I mean, thank you, guys. I mean, I, yeah, I'm, I'm so grateful for everything that you do. Anyone who listens to you, I'm sure it feels the same way. Um, mashallah, you guys are doing amazing work. No, I, honestly, the the podcast is only as good as as guests. <laughs> I'm telling you the truth. It's well, I every single one of them. May Allah reward them because their 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 commitment to tell mm-hmm. their story in the way they tell it, as open as they tell it, is truly inspired by Allah. Thank you so um, much. I hope that people listen to this with kindness <laughs> um, and understanding. And I know that. You know, there are probably times that I could have expressed myself more clearly, but no, you did it. You did it perfectly, honestly, Alex. And I know, I feel like I have a very strong confidence in the listeners. (laughs) Yeah, we're all your listeners. Yeah, I think we're all on a journey. Genuinely, I feel like they can get scary. Yeah, but like about the right things. Yeah, about the right, about the right things, (laughs) about the right things. Definitely, absolutely. Um, but I feel like we're all. I think the listeners us all of us we're all on a journey and we recognize they're all on a journey mm-hmm. and it's just like a bunch of i guess like hundreds of thousands of people just sharing notes that's how i see it mm, like we're I just a bunch of people sharing notes this is what i know about god what do you know mm. you know like this oh is what gosh, i know like I so this is much. a bunch of people just trying to put the pieces together and make sense of their own lives you know and i love that imagery. um and that and that's all that's happening and, and you're part of our little you know circle. We're just sharing notes. <laughs> like this happened to me, that happened to me. So Alhamdulillah wallahi, it's from mm-hmm. Allah and clearly Allah wants this podcast to be run in because it, it, I, every time that we think we're about to go out of business, it comes back up. <laughs> and we're like, you know, subhanAllah here uh, completely working for Allah Sata. So Jazakallah Khair, um, Alex, truly from the bottom of my heart. And what would you say to your younger self? I don't know if I would say anything to my younger self or just like, I feel like if I had an opportunity to be with my younger self, what I would give her would be like 
affirmation that she is love. Mm. Um, I think that's what was most difficult for me for a long time. Um, I feel like I was really afraid of love for a long time and didn't have a lot of like examples of tenderness um, or examples of just like, yeah, just like acceptance and kindness. And I think, alhamdulillah, you know, in my life now, I've been working on my relationships with my father, with my sister. Actually, last Ramadan, my dad and I fasted together. Uh, and, you know, we've been able to spend more time together. And I think just reminding her that just be like being able to find a way to show acceptance or affirmation or love. I think if there's any opportunity that we can do that for anyone at any time, that's beautiful. Um, so that's what I would do. This episode is brought to you by Beautiful Light Studios, recorded at MH Studios Toronto. I love to give a shout out to my favorite producer extraordinaire, Munishir Ahmad. It was a rough week, but we made it, sis. I love to also give a shout out to our recording engineer, Jonathan Lilo, our podcast intern, Nima Haroon, our graphic designer, Sima, aka Wasima Farah, our project manager, Yasmin Mahmoud, and last but not least, our marketing extraordinaire, Sosam Dalahi. If this podcast gave you any value, we're leaving it up to you this year. Donate however much you feel like it gave to you. And if you can't give right now, that's fine. Please give us your dress. Also, before I skedaddle, I love to announce to my Toronto listeners, um, we are having an event on July 17th from 5 to 7 p.m. Eastern Standard at Yorkdale. We're doing a collaboration with Hannah Hijabs. And TDS will be hosting an event at the department store in Nordstrom. I cannot believe it. I know. Nordstrom? TDS is a big game. Big, big, big game. <laughs> Inshallah. So we're going to be hosting a huge event um, on June 17th. And I wanted to let all the Toronto listeners about it um, definitely come out and support your girl in TDS. We'd love to meet some of you, inshallah, um, there. So, you know, save the date. June 17th, 5 to 7, Yorkdale Mall, department store Nordstrom. Um, we are celebrating the launch of Henna Hijab's spring collection. I'll see you guys next week in your ears, in your speakers, telling you what? Telling you a good story.